Welcome to you today. I'm Paul Pepis, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Leslie Alexander, associate professor of history at the University of Oregon. She joined the faculty in fall 2017 after 16 years at The Ohio State University. A specialist in African American uh, and American history, Alexander's teaching and research interests focus on black culture, nationalism, the creation of community, and political movements. Alexander's monograph, African or American, Black Identity and Political Activism in New York City, 1784 to 1861, won the 2010 award for distinguished scholarship from the National Council for Black Studies. Alexander is also the co-editor of the Encyclopedia of African American History and the volume We Shall Independent Be, African American Placemaking and the Struggle to Claim a Space in the United States. She has been selected for a 2018-19 Oregon Humanities Center Faculty Research Fellowship for her new project, The Cradle of Hope, Black Internationalism in the Aftermath of the Haitian Revolution. Thanks, Leslie, for coming on the show. Thank you. And Thanks so much for having me. And welcome to the University of Oregon. Thank you. And I guess I should thank you for that fellowship, oh. too, oh. to support my work. It's, <laughs> our, it's always our pleasure. Um, you come here from a lengthy career at uh, um, uh, the Ohio State University. What attracted to you, you to the U of O? Well, I, I guess I should start by saying that I lived for in Oregon for a long time when I was growing up. Um, I actually went to junior high and high school in Ashland. Oh, really? And huh. so, yeah, so coming back to the West Coast had been sort of a long time dream and fantasy. Huh. Um, and so um, I hadn't actually spent a lot of time in Eugene, but I, as an undergraduate, I actually had almost come to the University of Oregon. Hmm. And um, so when I saw the job there, it immediately sort of um, leapt off the page. But I was particularly inspired to come here because of um, the cluster hire in black studies that uh, the university was advertising at the time. And I've, I've been really happy and excited to see how successful um, the cluster hire yeah, has been. Has you know, been we, cool. we brought in six people um, in connection with that, that hire this past year. And there's a few more related hires going on this year. So it, that has been really exciting. But it was really the appeal of being able to come and be part of a group of people helping to build a black studies program from the ground up. Yeah. You know, it's an opportunity to kind of roll up your sleeves and be able to, <laughs> you know, create yeah. a vision. Very cool. So what sparked your interest in early African-American history? Uh, I mean, uh, you know, we hear a lot about civil rights history, but yeah. early African-American history, it's not something that I think yeah. a lot of Americans are very knowledgeable about. What sparked your interest? Yeah, no, that's true. And I, I also think that there's a little bit of a challenge there in the sense that usually when people think about early African-American history, if at all, they primarily think it's, it's prim just a story about slavery. Mm -hmm. And that's obviously a very painful and difficult part of our nation's history. Mm -hmm. um, and so people tend to shy away a little bit from, <laughs> from dabbling mm -hmm. in the early period. Um, but I was actually inspired to start studying early African-American history because of a class I took as an undergraduate, um, which is part of the reason why I like teaching so much and is part of the reason why I'm always the first one to volunteer to teach the early American and the early African-American history surveys, which people <laughs> usually don't want to teach. But I like teaching the introductory courses because it was in a course like that hmm. that I became interested um, and becoming a historian. I thought I was gonna be a political scientist and huh. go to law school <laughs> when I started um, college. I had never been particularly interested in history, but I took um, an early African-American studies course huh. and 
it was sort of like one of those light bulb, you know, kind of mind-blowing experiences where I was just introduced to a whole series of topics and information that no one had ever really told me um, mm. about. So I first started learning about um, the history of the transatlantic trade in humans, what we normally think of as the slave trade. Mm -hmm. um, we read a series of books on that, and over the long term, it led me to write an undergraduate honors thesis hmm. um, on that topic. And I actually did end up dabbling a little bit in civil rights and black power history, even as an undergraduate. But I just kept coming back to um, the early period, I think, in part because of that that was what originally drew me in. So the book is focused on New York City, so you're right. obviously you're focusing on the Northeast in the book. The That's title right. is African or American, it focuses on black identity and political activism in antebellum New York City, but first of all, gloss the title, African or American. What is that, <laughs> why, why is that the title? Right, so I actually came, up, came to that title as I was going through that rather unfortunate and painstaking process of turning a dissertation into a book, mm -hmm. which all <laughs> um, newly minted uh, assistant professors have to go through. But in the process of turning it into a book, I, I started to realize that at the core of the story that I was trying to tell was sort of a fundamental struggle over an identity question. Mm -hmm. um, that here you had the first couple of generations of folks who were emerging out of northern slavery mm -hmm. um, and were faced with a really interesting question of who are we? Mm -hmm. Like, are we Americans? Are we displaced Africans? Are we kind of a complicated amalgamation of the two? Like, who are we? Mm -hmm. And as I started to become interested in that question, I also started to realize that there was an often a correlation between how people identified and then the form their political activism took. So mm. the strategy that they felt was most likely to bring freedom and full justice and equality to the black population was often shaped by how they saw themselves. Mm -hmm. So, so that's, where this, that's where this idea of African or American came from. Are we Africans? Are we Americans? Are we something else? And what does that really mean in terms of what our place in this society is going to be? So what are the two sort of um, political strategies that a answering that question, what are we re differently results in? So, okay, if you answer the question, uh, what we really are is African. Right. What was the political activism that resulted from that identity? Right, I think that's a, I think in, in some ways that's the question mm -hmm. um, to ask because um, I have a lot of friends who do civil rights and black power who focus on the 20th century, and I'm always teasing them saying, you really can't understand your period if you don't understand my period. <laughs> of course. <laughs> because at the core of these questions about nationalism versus assimilation versus, you know, segregation versus desegregation, at the core of all of those debates is actually this 19th century debate mm -hmm, about mm -hmm. who are we and what is our relationship going to be to the United States. Mm -hmm. And so, um, to a large degree, it's there's a, a series of options on the table. One is that we're going to try to completely assimilate, right? Mm -hmm. To try to become as American, to shed as much of our cultural distinctiveness and our racial identity as we can and just fully blend into American society the way some other European immigrant groups at the time mm -hmm. were trying to do. Mm -hmm. um, were they gonna take sort of more of a middle of the road approach? So uh, a sense of we are going to maintain our racial and cultural distinctiveness, but still assert our right to an American identity and our right to American citizenship. And the third option is, are we just gonna leave this country entirely? Mm -hmm. 
And that's where, particularly in the 19th century, there's a pretty extensive, this is probably the least known thing about <laughs> black political consciousness in the 19th century, mm -hmm. but there's a pretty intense debate that takes place over really the bulk of the antebellum period over the question of, are we gonna stay in the United States or not? Um, can we ever actually achieve full equality in this country? And if not, what other nations might be willing to take us? So give us a sense of what kind of challenges black Americans faced in New York City during this period? I mean, that what are the kinds of things that are pr provoking people to think we should leave the, leave the United States? Right. So, I mean, it, some of them are ideological and mm -hmm. some of them are tangible. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the, the kind of ideological component, one of the um, points that I'm always kind of trying to hammer into my, into my students <laughs> um, is to keep in mind that, you know, slavery in the North lasted almost as long as it did in the South. Mm -hmm. And of course, we have a tendency to kind of want to make the Southerners the bad slaveholders and mm -hmm. the Northerners the mm -hmm. good anti-slavery people. Mm -hmm. um, but the truth is slavery lasted in the North for only a few decades less than it did in the South. And it's particularly true in the state of New York, which was one of the last states to give up the institution of slavery. Hmm. So they did not finally pass a universal emancipation law until 1827, hmm. which is very late. I mean, as you can see, it's like less than 30 years <laughs> before the end of the Civil War. Mm -hmm. So what you still have is all of the vestiges um, and ideologies that had supported slavery in the first place are still circulating um, in that period. For a, a large portion of the antebellum period, there are still people being held in forms of involuntary um, bondage. And even after universal emancipation goes into place, all of the racist ideologies that say black people are inferior, um, black people have no possibility of becoming full citizens. They have no hope of ever being equal to white people. Mm -hmm. All of those ideas that had come into play in order to justify slavery in the first place are still popularly circulating. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things I always say to my students is you can't legislate people's hearts and minds. Right. <laughs> and so they might, you know, the state of New York was passing emancipation laws, but how the average person on the street felt about whether they wanted to have black people living alongside them as full and equal citizens was not so clearly decided mm -hmm, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. by the passage of laws. So that's part of it, is that they are just facing tremendous amounts of racial hostility, and it means that they're facing segregated conditions in most places, public um, institutions and organizations are still um, segregated in the North in the antebellum period. It means that for the most part, black people don't have the right to vote. Um, and we'll probably talk about that a little bit later, but the, the vast majority of black men in New York in the antebellum period did not have access to the right to vote mm. because they had to meet property qualifications. Right, right. Um, it also means that they're facing tremendous underemployment and unemployment, so poverty is a huge problem. Um, and there's also a huge problem of anti-black race riots that are taking place all across the North. There's actually a series of them um, in New York in particular, but all across the North there is white mob violence that is literally driving black people out of um, the cities and the towns in which they live. Mm -hmm. So they're facing overwhelmingly um, hostile conditions and extremely difficult political and economic um, conditions. And it leads to a situation in which a lot of 
outspoken leaders in the community are quite literally saying, we are never mm -hmm. <laughs> going to you know, be able to overcome what the legacy of slavery um, and racism has been. And why should we continue to try to fight it out here? So one of the, um, one of the organizations that gets founded in response to these kinds of conditions is the, yes. uh, the New York African Society. So yes. what is the New York African Society and what are they advocating for? Yeah, the New York African Society is a really interesting organization. Um, and I should point out that there are kind of parallel organizations that crop up in most of the northern cities um, in the antebellum period. So Philadelphia has multiple hmm. free African societies, Boston does as well, and even some of the smaller um, towns end up having some form of um, what they often called a free African society or an African society for mutual relief. These are organizations primarily dominated by um, newly emancipated men mm -hmm. who are, and I should say there are female parallel organizations, but we know very little about them because they didn't leave organizational papers behind. But there are references here and there to the fact that black women had parallel sort of sister organizations mm -hmm. as well. Um, but the Free African Society is an organization dominated primarily by um, newly emancipated men who are coming together to try to chart a path forward. Um, and they are often sort of what we would think of as benevolent or mutual relief associations, mm -hmm. um, so that they're interested in trying to raise funds to, um, in some cases, bury people properly, mm -hmm. um, which is a huge problem um, across the North because most Northern cities are not allocating burial space to the black population. Um, in some cases, they're trying to raise funds to help financially support widows um, or young children who are orphaned, um, which again is a huge problem, particularly in the northern um, urban environment. Mm -hmm. um, and so they, they start as mutual relief organizations, but over time become increasingly political. So they become abolitionist organizations, mm -hmm. they become organizations that fight for, try to fight for um, universal suffrage. Um, they really become, in, at, at, particularly in the 1850s, they start to um, fight to protect fugitives right. um, from being sent back to the South. Mm -hmm. So they become involved in a, in a wide variety of, of political um, activities. And the, the book is also interested in um, some of the ways in which African cultural heritage gets yeah. uh, celebrated and enacted among uh, black New Yorkers. Mm -hmm. Say a little bit about that. Right, so one of the things that I chart in the book a little bit is how um, the black population changes over time in terms of its willingness to publicly display their African culture. Mm -hmm. So if you look, for example, at the, the very early period, let's say, for example, before um, the middle of the 1820s, I, I in my book kind of chart um, 1827 to 1829 as being a turning point. Um, but up until the middle of the 1820s, uh, what you see during those decades as people are starting to gradually be emancipated mm -hmm. um, is a situation in which uh, people of African descent, for the most part, identify in that way. They identify themselves as descendants of Africa. They say it in their speeches. They put it in their writings. Mm -hmm. um, and they have a whole series of cultural practices, how they bury their dead, um, for example, um, the way in which they worship. Um, the types of community activities that they come together around. And one of the big things that I feature in the book is the practice of parading, mm -hmm. which was common in a lot of West African um, societies. And parading was an important sort of cultural practice um, that 
uh, free black people continued to engage in, um, in some cases to celebrate or commemorate events like um, the abolition of the slave trade. Mm -hmm. But in other cases, it's to celebrate the anniversaries of their organizations. Um, and in some cases, they're also doing it as a way to demonstrate political protest um, against slavery or against other ideas. So parading up until the middle of the 1820s is a huge public way to demonstrate their cultural distinctiveness. And one of the images that I always try to kind of conjure up for people is you have to imagine, you know, thousands of black men marching through the streets of New York. They're marching down Broadway in full, you know, sort of military regalia. They're riding on horses. They're drumming like crazy. They have music. They're speaking in African languages. I mean, these are huge demonstrations mm. of their racial and cultural distinctiveness. And um, quite frankly, it, I mean, it kind of drives the white New Yorkers <laughs> crazy. Right, right, right. Um, but in that regard, it's, they're, it's tremendously important to them to sort of flaunt and demonstrate their racial and cultural distinctiveness. But what you start to see is that by the end of the 1820s and definitely into the 1830s, this idea of we have to convince white people that we can be Americans just like them starts to win out mm -hmm. and they become more and more compelled to kind of put their cultural distinctiveness under wraps mm -hmm. so in parades, order to try to prove their right to citizenship. So the parades go away. The parades almost entirely go mm. into decline. Mm. There's maybe, there's like one parade that's held in New York mm. in 1855 um, and the black leadership is outraged and really upset. This is sort of like a ground oh, up um, type of activity. The black leadership is very upset about it. But it's the only a piece of evidence that we have after like 1829 that a, a black parade ever happened um, in New York. So it, it goes, they really <laughs> are going out of their way to try to say, we can be Americans, we can be um, equal. It's part of, a, part of a political philosophy that becomes known as um, moral uplift. Mm -hmm. And the idea is we need to morally improve ourselves and demonstrate our ability to be able to conduct ourselves morally just like white folks as a way of trying to convince them that we have a right to citizenship. And it's a really important shift because it's one that ends up ultimately dominating the trajectory of black political philosophy all the way up and through the civil rights movement. Yeah, right, I mean, I know the talented 10th ideology is exactly that. Exactly, right? Yeah, right. right. So the majority of the book is a kind of chronological account of this period, but the last chapter is this focused case study yeah. on Seneca Village. Yeah. So what was Seneca Village? Why is that an important uh, uh, case study to focus on? Yeah, I ended up making that a, a standalone chapter because it was the story of Seneca Village that actually initially drew me into this project in the first place. Um, years and years ago, when I was first starting to research, I went to the New York Historical Society and stumbled upon this um, exhibit that they had there featuring Seneca Village, and they had piece together every kind of little piece of evidence mm. they could find um, about this community and I became totally fascinated. Seneca Village was a, a community, it was, um, the borders of, of Seneca Village did have a small um, German and Irish um, immigrant population, but overwhelmingly Seneca Village was a, a black um, settlement, originally started in 1825, where some members of the African Society found out about um, a collection of parcels that were being um, you know, cut up and set up, you know, put up for sale. And so they went in collectively and bought plots of land. And from there, um, the community started to grow. So that by the 1830s and 40s, you actually had a pretty thriving 
um, settlement there. Seneca Village, um, and this is sort of the, the part that makes the story the most compelling, was located on the, the land that eventually became Central Park. And what becomes um, really, uh, for me, um, sort of poignant about this particular story is that the community ends up being destroyed and removed in order to create Central Park. And one of the things that I argue in the book is that it's actually an intentional conspiracy on the part of politicians to remove this very thriving um, and viable black settlement um, because they could have put the park somewhere else. Mm -hmm. But they decided, they, they had um, options about which parcel of land to choose and they chose that particular property because they were invested in wanting to remove this image of what black freedom could look like hmm. um, in this particular the period. what's the year that the city takes over that, that so property? So they, they invoke eminent domain, um, <laughs> which is still a, a contentious um, idea, but they invoke the, the principle of eminent domain in order to justify seizing the land. They first seize the land in 1855. Okay. Um, and then there's a, a pretty lengthy battle um, that goes on over the next couple of years, and they finally remove the last residence in 1857. Hmm. Fascinating. Yeah. So um, you are the recipient, as I mentioned, of a 2018-19 Oregon Humanities Center Research Fellowship. Tell us about that project. So yeah, interestingly enough, I kind of came in the back door of this <laughs> project connected to my original research, um, I became really interested in when I was researching my first book about the, the thousands of people over the course of the antebellum period who actually made the decision to leave the United States um, and migrate elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And I became particularly interested in the more than 13,000 free black people who migrated to Haiti. Hmm. Um, I became just totally fascinated with the question of why would they want to go to Haiti and what is their interest, what's their um, attachment to that particular location, what's the appeal, um, how is that particular movement successful? And so it made me become more interested in the question of how did um, black activists during this period view Haiti and by extension, and perhaps more importantly, how did they view political issues affecting people of African descent outside of the boundaries of the United States more generally? Mm -hmm. um, so this new project is basically a study that tries to take seriously the idea of a, a foreign policy um, and a political consciousness around U.S. foreign policy among the black population in the 19th century. So most studies that try to look at ideas of black foreign policy start at the turn of the 20th century mm -hmm. and basically argue that black activists aren't really thinking about those issues earlier. And so my, black, my, my, my book project is really challenging people um, to take seriously the idea that black activists were thoroughly aware of political issues throughout the globe um, and we're particularly interested in the success of Haiti um, as an independent republic. Haiti becomes particularly important and compelling to them because Haiti is, um, first of all, the um, only example of a successful slave rebellion um, that results in the establishment of an independent republic. Mm -hmm. And so they become that becomes symbolically important um, to the black population as an example of what black self-governance could be, um, what resistance against slavery could look like, what images of black freedom could look like. So they become very invested in the, um, in the image of, of Haiti. And so they become very caught up in the question of U.S. foreign policy 
towards Haiti. So th that's essentially what the project is is trying to. And what eventually with. happens uh, with U.S. foreign policy in relation to Haiti? So th it's a it's a pretty long and extensive battle that takes place over the course of the the antebellum period. It's actually not until 1865 that um, the U.S. finally agrees to. Um, recognize Haiti diplomatically, and it's largely as the result of the fact that the Civil War um, is underway, right. and they're kind of using it as a way to irritate the Confederacy. I'm sorry, I think I said 1865, but it's 1861. Okay. Sorry about that. Um, but so it's shortly after the war breaks out, the U.S. government, the the um, federal government, <laughs> the Union, realizes that a way to um, irritate the Confederacy is to diplomatically recognize Haiti. So they make the decision to do it um, at that point, but it's... Before the war, they're very resistant, Before right? Before the war, they're extremely resistant. Mm -hmm. um, to a large degree, because Northern politicians are ambivalent, they're unsure themselves about how they feel about recognizing Haiti, but also because they know that Southern politicians will not stand for it. Mm -hmm. So. Um, the U.S. government is pretty solidly and consistently opposed to even recognizing Haiti's existence um, through the course of, of the antebellum period. And of course, what's particularly disturbing about that is that while the United States government won't officially recognize Haiti, they are making a tremendous amount of money off of the economic relationship. So they're still trading kind of behind the scenes with Haiti and making a lot of money off of that economic relationship, but politically and diplomatically they won't acknowledge their independence and their existence. So we just have a couple of minutes left. I, I might be able yeah. to get to two questions, but okay. we'll see how I'll it goes. I'll try to keep my answers quick. Uh, no, 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 sorry. <laughs> um, so the first question is, and I guess maybe the way to ask this is, um, why, why is it important for Americans today to learn about early African-American history? Why is that an important thing to do? Why should we learn about this relationship with Haiti? Why, why, should, we do, why should we know those things? Right. Well, I think, as I was sort of alluding to a little bit earlier when I was saying my civil rights historian friends can't understand mm -hmm. their time period without understanding the past, I just happen to be a person who believes that if you want to understand what's happening in the contemporary moment, you have to be willing to understand the history that has brought you to this point. Um, and so, for example, if we want to understand why Haiti is the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere, which is what the media keeps reminding us over and over again, we have to understand something about how that happened. You know, France, the United States, the Western nations caused that um, to happen. There's a history that explains that. And so if we want to better understand what's happening in our society today around race relations, around foreign policy, about the relationship between different nations, if we want to understand what's happening now, we have to be willing to understand how we got to this place. So last question, one minute. Um, you're, you are, in addition to being a productive scholar, an awarded teacher. Tell us about one course that you teach. Well, I already talked a little bit about the surveys. As I told you, those are my favorites. Probably the class that um, I most recently got the most excited about is, a, is actually a history and film class. So it's a course that um, basically challenges people to look at um, the question of historical accuracy in film and to consider why Hollywood presents the African-American history in particular ways and to what extent they do it accurately and to what extent they don't and why, right? Um, particular images are played up and others are ignored. Well, we're not, we don't have time to go into answering the question why, <laughs> but I'm sure your students, when they take that class, will be fascinated. Yeah, hopefully. Thank you so much, Leslie, for taking the time Thank to speak with so us today. Thank you so much for having me.
I've been speaking with Leslie Alexander, a new associate professor of history at the University of Oregon. Thanks again. Thank you. Thanks so much for watching. Thank you.